This is the case dot report. Welcome to this podcast on the practical application of comprehensive geriatric assessment in the emergency department. We hope to provide you with some useful guidance on undertaking a comprehensive geriatric assessment in your ED. My name is Dr. Elizabeth Maloney. I'm a geriatrician based in the emergency department of the Mercy University Hospital in Cork in Ireland. My clinical and MD research interests are based on effective frailty screening in ED and in particular the feasibility and clinical effectiveness of ED and triage-based frailty screening tools. I'm joined by Professor Simon Conroy, a geriatrician steeped in frailty experience, uh, who is based in St Pancras Rehabilitation Unit in London and formerly of the University of Leicester. Uh, Professor Conroy has extensive experience in acute and emergency care of older people at the interface between primary and secondary care and was pivotally involved with work such as the Silver Book 1 and 2 and the Acute Frailty Network. We're also Thank you for the <laughs> We're also joined by Dr. Rebecca Heath, who originally trained in Scotland and Manchester, but moved to Australia after her FY2 year. She has worked in Nepal, Papua New Guinea, and across three states and territories in Australia, where she completed her ED training. She currently works as a specialist in emergency medicine at the Royal Hobart Hospital in Tasmania and has an interest in geriatric emergency medicine. So welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Such an honour to be here with you guys. Well, thank you to both and thank you for your time. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to hear if clinical perspectives vary between Northern and Southern Hemispheres. So I look forward to your insights. Um, Our aim for this podcast is to discuss the components involved in undertaking a CGA in the emergency department and the specific challenges that may pose. We'll examine the evidence behind CGA and resources that may be of help to you when undertaking a CGA in your own department. So let's begin. Simon, uh, if I could start with your perspective on this, you have extensive experience in assessing older adults living with frailty in different clinical settings. What is a comprehensive geriatric assessment and how does the ED environment influence its application? Well, um, it's a really poor name for a really important process of care uh, because I would argue that, first of all, comprehensive geriatric assessment isn't comprehensive. So it's not about doing everything for everybody all of the time, but it's about looking holistically at people. Um, and you can break that down in lots and lots of different ways and the different services up and down the country and across the world have different ways of looking at it. But essentially, it should be a multi-dimensional assessment that looks at medical, psychological, social, functional and environmental aspects of, uh, of the whole person. So rather than just focusing, as we traditionally do in acute hospitals or acute care, on the medical issues, thinking a bit more broadly. Um, all of that then uh, communicated and coordinated, typically within an MDT, because this isn't a single person's job or a single individual, it's, it's a team effort. Um, and uh, of course, underpinning that person-centeredness, so doing what matters to the individual. Or, yeah, so, yeah, making sure that the care is person-centered. Um, so comprehensive, not so much, more about being holistic. Uh, geriatric, I would argue, not really about geriatricians, although clearly geriatricians are trained and hopefully capable and competent in delivering geriatric competencies, but actually the skills needed to deliver CGA are much more than a geriatrician, it's the MDT, and there's no reason why emergency physicians or acute physicians or others can't deliver the medical component of that, as long as they understand delirium from dementia and polypharmacy and end-of-life care and 
person-centeredness. So it's competencies rather than labels on your work uh, tag. <clears throat> and assessment, again, I think the history of this is when CGA was first being tested back in the 60s, 50s, older people didn't get any decent assessment. And so that's why it got this label of assessment. Now we do assess people sometimes, and some people would argue too often and too much, uh, but it's about what you do in response to that assessment. So it's not comprehensive, it's holistic, it's not geriatricians only, it's a team-based uh, care, uh, care model. And it's not just about assessment, it's about what you do in response to that. And do you, do you think the ED environment is particularly challenging to apply that at CGA in an ED? Um, I personally, I, I think not. Uh, I think if you think of CGA as a process of care, so you start with the urgent and the important, um, and then what needs to be done, what's urgent and the important needs to be done now, what's important but not urgent can be done later in the care pathway, whether that be in the hospital or in the patient's home, depending on what the disposition is from the ED. Um, and obviously stuff that's not urgent or important doesn't need to get done, uh, so that's relatively easy. But I think, you know, the, the ED is such a fundamental part of the urgent care pathway that it would be remiss of us not to look at at least initiating that holistic CGA type model of care in the ED. So to give you some examples, if you don't assess someone's degree of frailty when they first arrive, you don't know whether the 65-year-old person before came on with the disease is in the last year of life or in the, in the, in, has got another 10 years uh, of life or, or more to live. And that fundamentally affects your clinical decision-making in the ED. So if someone's fallen and got a bang on the head and they're anticoagulant, uh, if they're CFS 3, 4, 5, you know, it's very reasonable to put them through the standard process of getting a CT head, seeing if there's a bleed, and then referring on if necessary. And I don't think anybody would critique you for doing that. However, if that person's in the last year of life, so let's say CFS 8, then it may be that referral to neurosurgeons isn't going to lead to a change in the outcome or the management of the patient. Certainly, almost certainly won't change the outcome in terms of their mortality. And there's a question to ask yourself there, well, why am I doing this test? And would that time organising the test, waiting for the results, be better spent having a conversation with the patient if they're able to communicate or their loved ones or other key informants about what matters and what we're trying to achieve with this particular care model? So I think, you know, ED for me is, has always been a really rewarding place to practice uh, geriatric assessment. I think it, it feels like you're really influencing and altering the trajectory of the patient, hopefully for the better, um, and the evidence would support that to some extent. Great. So one of the challenges of older adult ED care are presenting TD with non-specific complaints or with classic frailty syndromes, falls, immobility, delirium incontinence. So assessment of older adults in ED can be complex, it can be time consuming. Do you think every other adult in ED should have a CGA or how do we target those that need it most? Yeah, so as I said at the beginning, I don't think you need to do everything for everybody all of the time and that's just clearly not you know, uh, possible within the context of an emergency department with its time limits. Um, so I think you have to be, you have to have a think about what you're trying to achieve with your, let's imagine you're trying to set up a frailty service. Um, so the evidence base would support delivery of CGA to older people with broadly speaking, severe, moderate to severe frailty, so CFS scores of six or higher. That's not been formally tested in the literature, but if you look at the patients that have been included in either ED or acute geriatric trials, they're broadly speaking that population. So if you want to align with the evidence base, then that's the reasonable place to start. 
The other advantage, in quotes, of um, looking at people with more severe, moderate or severe frailty is that those arguably the people that have the most to lose or gain, uh, depending on how you, you respond to their needs um, in the acute hospital setting. So, for example, 80% 80, 80 of the bed days, well, this is English data, but 80% of the bed days in people over the age of six, 75 are accounted for by people with high frailty scores. So if you're about decongesting your hospital and getting people out, which sadly is, understandably, but sadly seems to be a very high priority mm. in many healthcare settings as opposed to doing what matters to patients, uh, which maybe we'll talk about later on, uh, then that's a population whom, if you get a supported discharge working from the ED, that you can avoid lots of bed days and, and congesting hospitals and so on. But others would argue, well, you know, that population maybe, you know, isn't, shouldn't be our priority and we could start with people with lower levels of frailty who've got more to gain from a more restorative perspective. So getting in there early, identifying those geriatric syndromes and aiming to restore or reverse the conditions, improve outcomes that way. So it, I don't, personally, I would go for severe frailty because I think that's where, where the money is and where the evidence base aligns more. But I think it's a choice about what you're trying to achieve. Great. Um, so I guess looking at the evidence uh, around CGA, so there is uh, evidence demonstrating an association between inpatient CGAs and the patient being alive and community dwelling at 12 month follow up. Mm. Is there evidence that CGA in ED is feasible and beneficial to older adults in ED? We've just done a review of reviews on emergency care for older people and there, there must be about 18 primary studies of various different designs. Randomised controlled trials, I think there's three or four plus cohort, pre, post cohorts, etc. All of which have shown that it's feasible to deliver some form or other of geriatric assessment to older people in the ED. So, um, and plus on the back of that, we've got real world evidence from the frailty networks, which I've been involved with over the last five or six years, seven years. Uh, so National Improvement Collaborative focusing on urgent care settings and the needs of older people. And we've seen lots of services up and down England, some in Ireland as well, a couple in Wales. That have done something in mm. ED. Um, I'm not saying they're all perfect and far from it, there's always room for improvement. I think the evidence base plus the real world evidence from the frailty networks tells us it is possible. Um, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to achieve, but it can be delivered in the ED setting, from my experience. Okay. Um, I think that, um, I suppose, in terms of my perspective from an ED point of view, that, that balance between feasible, beneficial, and what we do all the time in medicine is that working out the risk benefit balance of what are the risks of that patient having an extended stay in the emergency department and the things that come with that. So high risk of delirium, pressure sores, all the problems that you can have as part of being in a noisy and difficult environment. Uh, when does that tipping point come in that the benefits of waiting a longer time for those components of a multidisciplinary assessment from which the we talk about in terms of the comprehensive, which I understand mm. Simon's very nicely explained as a more holistic view. What's the tipping point for how much of that you do in the ED sure. with the risks of being in a yeah. sort of not perfectly optimal environment to support older patients? So, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's a fair comment. I think the, the important thing is to get that frailty mindset, that person centeredness, that holistic kind of thinking above and beyond protocols and pathways in, into, into the way of practicing in the emergency department context. In terms of like all the component parts of CGA, so the physio assessment, the OT assessment, the social care assessment, et cetera, et cetera, 
I'm not arguing for one second that all of that must be done in the ED, but actually if that frailty mindset is there in the first instance and it's influencing decisions about admit versus discharge and what support might be needed, there's no reason why that can't continue. And so the whole concept of this interface geriatrics that we've been playing around with for a while now is actually we should have a process of care which is seamless across boundaries, of course, easy to say, very hard to achieve in practice. But, you know, if we get our systems right and we communicate effectively with community partners, there's no reason why the urgent and important can't be done in the ED and then the important stuff picked up by the community teams. Absolutely. That's what we should be striving yeah. for. Yeah. I know it's not easy, it's yeah. not easy to and achieve. It is, yeah, and it is hard. I mean, certainly in Ireland, the, the, the national policies are going towards that as well, where you have, you're um, trying to resource community um, services so that there's a bi-directional pathway. Mm-hmm. So there's proper egress and support in the community mm. which has probably been lacking maybe in a lot of other you know uh, areas and around eds as well i suppose uh, and i guess it's it's challenging as well i guess in ed you know like you were saying metrics is, you know certain metrics are important to hospital organizations and patient-centered outcomes and, and metrics you know obviously might not be a priority when you're looking at utilizing hospital resources so i think that's definitely a challenge uh, in ed so on metrics if i may so one of the things that um <clears throat> we've been looking at because uh, yeah you know the four hour standard or for uh, whatever it is now 12 hour standard uh, depends where you work i guess is you know it's not as an evil thing quite as an evil thing as people have made out it's a good system kind of metric it tells you how well your system is performing because of course it's, it measures what happens in ED, but it's a barometer of what's happening across the whole health and social care system in many ways. But it has undoubtedly had some perverse impacts and, and perverse incentives with that classic peak of admit, admissions coming towards the four-hour uh, cut-off point. Um, work we've been doing recently, one of my colleagues, James Van Oppen, who's an ED physician in, yes. in Leicester, who may have come across, um, is nearly finished but not quite another six months I think he needs uh, developing a prom for all the people living with frailty in the ED or urgent care context and so I think what would be really nice in the future is to have a suite of metrics which actually cover all the different bases so that we're not just dominated by the time-based targets which have their role but actually we start to introduce some patient reported outcome measures proms that speak to what matters to all the people and then we could have a bit more balance that could be quite powerful yeah fantastic that sounds a fantastic initiative so if we look at the practicalities, how do we undertake a CGA in a busy ED environment? Who should be involved in, in the team? So my ideal CGA pathway, uh, based on my experience, particularly working in Leicester, where I've done quite a lot of geriatric emergency medicine, would be to have a senior decision maker with geriatric emergency medicine competencies at triage at the point of handover. I think we miss a real uh, a lot of places we miss a trick uh, paramedics are incredible uh, resources resources is the wrong word um, you know group of individuals who are, who are just fantastic so we, i'm going off piece a bit now but you know we've been doing sort of pre-hospital support for paramedics and clinical decision making in, in, in community settings having phone conversations with them they know their patients well they're pragmatic they're holistic they they know what the care plan is they know what the medication is they know what the right things to do for the patient is. and of course they get to spend a decent amount of time with these people they're often in contact with them you know for half an hour an hour on scene if not longer and then the amount of time coming in and sadly waiting in outside the ed so they know their patients really well so getting that handover from the paramedic face to face i think is is critical because you will get the most accurate representation of what's going on with that individual and 
their environment and their family and others that they would have contacted. Um, that, that, that's, that's the best place to get that information. And immediately you've already got a big chunk of what could be considered CGA. You'll know a bit about the medical problems, the psychological, i.e. dementia, delirium, uh, or depression, for example. Uh, you'll know a bit about function, because they've seen where the regulators are, or the walking aids, or whether the stairs in the house. You'll know who's at home with them. You'll know who's what the environment looks like. So you can get an awful lot of information very, very quickly from the ED. When Jay and I do ED, uh, Jay, Patrick, Jay's my ED colleague in Leicester, um, when we do triage, in, in, or when we did... When I was doing triage in Este, we'd have that conversation in five or ten minutes and it would immediately give us a really clear direction of travel. Not everything worked out and mapped out beautifully, but a clear direction of where we think we're heading with this individual, as well as their level of frailty, because you know, paramedics are doing that quite routinely now. Absolutely, yeah. So you can start, I think, start it in ED, uh, in triage, um, and then it depends what you need. What, you know, that initial assessment is going to direct or guide what, what happens next. So they may well need a mobility assessment. And yeah, we can do mobility assessments, and many would argue that it's up to us as clinicians to at least do some form of mobility assessment, because how do we know that they haven't got a hip fracture if we don't actually get the person up and walk and, yeah. and see what they're doing? In practice, I guess you work as a team and, and, and identify who's best place to help with that. But we certainly would do some, some of those assessments if we felt it would be useful from a diagnostic and a discharge planning perspective. Um, but there's no reason why you can't be doing these activating different members of the MDT in parallel. So we've got that initial handover from the paramedics. We know roughly where we're heading. We know we're going to need therapy input so we can get our therapists involved in the triage area in parallel to waiting for whatever diagnostics may or may not be necessary. I think starting it really at the beginning of the patient journey. I'm not sure I've answered the question now, but no, I'm sure you'll clarify. That's very good. No, that's very good. From the ED perspective, Rebecca, you know, do you find uh, the interface with, say, your geriatric colleagues in um, in ED is, you know, are there is an ideal team that you would like as well in ED? Um, I think we've talked about the fact that it is very much a multidisciplinary um, role that you want to wrap around the patients, and it's lots of people have different expertise, and you want all of those to come together. Um, so yes, it's amazing having geriatricians to be able to work with and have advice and learn from and assess patients. Um, we uh, don't unfortunately have a geriatrician at triage, which would be very nice. Um, but I think we've talked about the fact that it's, it is about communicating and mm. from all of those team members and through into the community, that interface into hospital and then back out of hospital to community care providers is really important. In terms of that early uh, geriatric assessment in ED, something that I find useful is to um, think about it in terms of the way you stand at the end of a, end of a bed for a resus for a patient. So those patients that have frailty that are older, you want to be looking at everything that's going on and it's remembering to stand back to be able to give you that holistic view of all the components that are ideally involved and those people involved to be able to coordinate that. Mm. You may have come across Christian Nickel from yes. Switzerland. Yes. He's an amazing emergency physician. So for him, frailty is the sixth vital sign. A, B, C, D, E, F for frailty. So I think that my comment about assessing frailty is part of your resource or your general ED assessment is well understood. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So as if people listen to the podcast, if they wanted to Im- embed a CGA in their own ED, what stakeholders do you think need to be involved in that process? Um, 
we had a bit of this conversation yesterday with Bex. Uh, I think I think relationships are key to this. Um, and before you start doing anything, I think you need to think carefully about who is going to be a part of that. Um, you can go through formal stakeholder mapping uh, activities, and there's lots of guidance on how you can do that in terms of people's influence as well as their interest um, in the service that you might want to be uh, want to develop. Um, but actually being pragmatic at the beginning, if you're at the beginning of your journey, it's about a coalition of the willing. Just find one or two people that have got a similar mindset to you, preferably from different parts. So, you know, a really good mix of ED and, and geriatric medicine or whatever other discipline, but somebody from the emergency medicine or ED and someone from geriatrics. Because actually they're brothers or sisters in arms in many ways because, of the, you know, we're all used to assessing a wide range of conditions in often an unspecific, um, undifferentiated population. Um, so there's a natural kind of coalition of the willing, I think, between emergency medicine and geriatric medicine, um, and uh, and build that relationship, and then just get people on board that are enthusiasts. You, you'll have done the um, diffusion, uh, what's it called, the adoption curve, yeah? So you want your early adopters in there, the innovators and early adopters early, others will come in due course if you, if you get your processes right and the outcomes start to improve. But who specifically, you know, you need a, some uh, medics, I guess, from geriatrics, from emergency medicine, maybe acute medicine as well, if they're interested. Um, certainly going to need therapists. Um, nurses are going to be critical. Some places can get social care involved or social workers. Maybe you don't need them as part of the kind of core team on, on operation on the ground, but you certainly need their knowledge, their, their access to the pathways and support they can bring in. Um, we've had some fantastic support over the years from a team called Meaningful Activity Coordinators who are typically healthcare assistants that are, are really great at providing meaningful activities to people with um, dementia or delirium or just agitation more generally. They can be incredibly powerful. Um, the HCAs as a workforce, I think, are much underestimated. They, they're the ones that spend a huge amount of time with patients. Yeah. But they will give you the really pragmatic insights as to what's working, what's not working, and what needs to change. Um, and of course, most importantly, the patients themselves is, is getting that patient voice in there because, um, you know, we're doing this, we're talking about person-centeredness and yet immediately my response to you has been about all the different disciplines. So where's the patient voice? Yeah. Different ways of achieving that. So you, you can, in theory, have your patients as part of your kind of weekly um, improvement meetings. Um, that may or may not work. Uh, depends on your particular context and setup. But there's other ways of getting the patient voice in there. Um, so one of the things that we've done quite a lot on in the Fountain Networks is something called experience-based design, which is where you essentially take a, a, it's a bit like the friends and family test for those of you familiar with that, but it's a bit more sophisticated and it's attuned or intended for the needs of for all the people living with Fountain. So it's a cognizant of cognition um, and um, you know simple and easy to use, literally just emojis with a few descriptors about how people are feeling at different touch points on their journey before arriving, arriving in ED, being assessed for the first time, waiting for investigations, and so on and so forth. Um, and that can give you a, a, an emotional map of what it's like to be on the receiving end of the care in your emergency department, and you can pull that into your service planning meeting. So different ways of achieving it, but I think having a patient at the centre um, of our minds is really important, whether that's in the room with us or via the results of the EBD. I think the other thing to add, um, if I may, is that it's... I think important not to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of incredible work that's already been done out there and reaching out for help. And people are 
incredibly willing to support and share because ultimately what we're all trying to do is improve patient outcomes so remembering that there is a, a there are a lot of resources mm. already available to help start this sort of thing yeah yeah absolutely i might stick with you rebecca um i'd be interested to hear what your experience of cgaed australia has been have you had any major challenges or strategies maybe that you've come across that you'd like to share um, I think it's a really exciting time for geriatric emergency medicine. We've got so much that's developing and changing as we learn and the evidence grows and all the exciting work that's going on. It's a very, um, it, yeah, it is a very exciting time to be to be um, working in the space. In terms of challenges, I think lots of EDs um, face access log overcrowding and the physical um, ideal environments in terms of space and with a pandemic not having um, the immediate support person there with the patient to get that immediate collateral. Um, I suppose in terms of thinking about strategies it's that really early communication with people that you can get collateral from both outside of the hospital if it's coming to closing hours for ringing the patient's GP, getting hold of the family who might be really far away um, and remembering to um, just coordinate all of that early early on in, in the journey and trying to set yourself up for success. So getting a hearing amplifier if the patient has hearing impairment, finding a chair to sit next to the patient and perhaps if they um, are have been perhaps under triage, talking to your nursing colleagues, up triaging them if needed um, and remembering um, how important it is to um, assess those patients and whether they have frailty and how that fits into your assessment and, and where where you could perhaps move them to for a, um, a, a more comprehensive, even though we've talked about how we define comprehensive um, assessment in terms of space in your ED. Um, so early communication using other people are talking early so that those other MDT assessments can happen as part of that, part of that assessment. The environment's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I hear this a lot about EDs and not the right environment. And yeah, okay, I, hear, I understand where people are coming from. Uh, acute hospitals, on the whole, are not particularly well designed for older people. Um, so why don't we change it? You know, um, because it's not that difficult. So it doesn't have to be a big multi-million-pound structural refurbishment that's going to break the bank. Um, if you look at the EU GMS uh, USEM guidance on uh, changes you can make to ED. There's some real simple things like just signage, uh, having food and drink available, uh, making sure people have got um, hearing uh, amplifiers that you're talking about or magnifying glasses. And there's just so many small little bits that you can do that make a difference. It doesn't have to be the big restructuring. Yeah. Um, I've been really lucky working in Esther where we do have a family ED by design. Uh, and it does make a massive, massive difference. We were talking yesterday about the cubicles and the privacy and dignity that that brings these glass sliding doors so that you've got kind of some semblance of soundproofing. But little things can also make a big difference. I mean, it is when, you know, like you said, most or a lot of EDs are not age friendly by design, but um, the signage, simple things like maybe utilising your, you know, your healthcare assistance to make sure people are hydrated, that they're getting their medications on time, that, you know, we're not escalating and uh, it was causing detriment to the patient while they are in the ED with very simple things um you know a lot of EDs have designated cubicles that everyone is aware that there might be a frail older person in that in that cubicle um and it maybe just heightens awareness as well so very simple things yeah I agree and I think 
I think age-friendly design in hospitals is, is definitely gaining momentum and it's, um, it's, it's something, I guess, that should be looked at in the overall CGA outlook if you can and, and if, you, if you are looking to, to embed your CGA in your ED. So if, uh, again, we were giving advice to people listening, are there resources or toolkits you could advise um, listeners on who would wish to explore the topic further and maybe establish a CGA in their own ED? Yeah, there's loads. Um, so, uh, in no particular order, so the Acute Frailty Network that I mentioned earlier has got lots of guidance. Uh, I think some of it you might need to register to, to access, but there's lots of like case studies, there's a toolkit, there's you know, examples of how people have gone about making changes, not exclusively in the ED, but in the acute pathway more generally. Um, so that's one good resource that I know well. British Geriatric Society has got quite a lot of information on it. So there's the silver book on there, which is in web format, which has got advice from the you know people across the world about how to do better geriatric emergency medicine or acute care more generally. I mentioned earlier the EU GMS and USEM special interest group. So that brings together European geriatrics and emergency medicine. They've recently just launched a set of resources. I'm sure we can put the web link on, 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 on the podcast um, or the company information. Uh, with some really practical, easy to follow guides, implementation guides, just like on page of A4 of things you can think about. Um, and then uh, just uh, just mention it whilst it's because it's in my head at the moment. I've just finished the final report on this emergency care study that we've been leading for the last few years. Um, that's uh, one of the output one output from which is a systems dynamics tool um, which will be available on the acute therapy network website as well um, so that will help you kind of gauge which model of care might best suit your emergency department so taking account of your population people coming in and what you're trying to achieve it will point you towards one of five evidence-based scenarios that might achieve the outcomes that you're looking to to realize Yes, there is the, I suppose, Dan Milady, the yeah. in Toronto, he has a, the jerryem.com. There's a lot of modules in geriatric emergency medicine, case studies, videos, discussion boards, question and answers. There's also the GED Collaborative, again, yeah. it's US-based, um, and obviously the British Geriatric Society. Um, and as, from an Australian point of view, I've even referenced all the resources. <laughs> but Don's just published a book, Creating a Geriatric Emergency right. Department, a practical guide. Yeah. Um, and it is very practical. So if you are new to trying to figure out how to make um, changes um, or already have a lot of um, great services and are looking for ways to keep improving, the book's got a lot of really very practical guides and tips and tricks. So. And of course this week in Melbourne there is the International Federation of Emergency Medicine meeting which has a special interest group in uh, geriatrics, so that's another resource. Very good. So I think we've touched on a lot of maybe the major practical things, but are there any maybe final thoughts or pointers we haven't touched on that you, that you think are important to highlight? Yeah, I think the main thing is not to be overwhelmed because it's um, it can seem like a, a it is a massive journey. It is a massive journey, and it will take a long time to get your. If you're starting from a relatively you know early point, don't have many resources, don't have many geriatricians or MDT members running around your ED. Um, you know it can feel like a, a massive, massive challenge. But the key is just to make a start make small tests of change and start building those relationships and start building confidence in, in what you're doing. So have the big vision, have the big picture, but don't let that overwhelm you. Just break it down like you would anything into, you know, drive a diagram with its component parts and then just work through steadily, steadily, steadily and build over time. 
but don't delay start today uh, it's you know it, 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 good don't let perfect be the enemy of good very sound advice and Rebecca any final thoughts well I think that this is um, a perfect way to help support anyone working in the acute care setting and having an educational resource with experts like yourselves being able to um, find that online in a podcast format and learn from it is really super so thank you very much for producing such great resources Okay, well, we hope you found this podcast helpful in outlining the practical aspects of CGA and ED. My thanks again to Professor Simon Conroy and Dr. Rebecca Heath for their insights. Thank you for being such an excellent host. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, please check out EU for other GEM topics and educational resources on older adult care and ED. Thank you for listening and take care.